this feeling of stuckness, this feeling of incompleteness that has brought me into therapy for like the last 20 years and really as a seeker was really unresolved grief. And unresolved grief is, it's usually, it's the unmet hopes, dreams, and expectations for our life. It's all the things that we wish were different, better, or more. Allison Hare, the host of the Culture Changers podcast. Thanks for tuning in to my chat with grief coach and thought leader, Libby Karstensen. All right, we are here with Libby Karstensen, the host of the Grieve Better podcast, yoga instructor, grief coach, a whole bunch of other stuff. Libby, I'm so excited. So um, just to back up real quick, so we know each other through BYLR Radio. So Libby's show is broadcast exclusively there. And as soon as that podcast came on board, Grieve Better, those words, I'm like, I am so dialed in and I need to speak with her. (laughs) So Libby, (laughs) welcome to the Culture Changers podcast. Please catch us up. Tell me a little bit more about you. So I, first of all, I'm so excited to be here. Um, I remember, I think it was even before the first episode aired, you're like, I've got to have you on my podcast. (laughs) It's like, wow. I don't know what you're talking about, but I need it. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, I like her faith. Um, So the podcast grieved better. And I'm so excited to be a part of BYLR because I've met so many amazing people present company right here included. And um, one of the questions I I get most often asked is, Grieve Better, how the heck did you end up with, first of all, grief being what you do and what you're so passionate about? So I think I'd like to just share, how did I end up here? Which, I mean, there's, it's one of those things when you, I don't know if you've ever done this, you look back on your life and it's like, you could have turned left, but instead you turned right. It's like these really... Yeah, it's like exactly sliding doors and it's like these um these these pivotal moments and um I'm a big fan of Joseph Campbell's work so like a hero's journey and I I see in when I look at my life through that template I'm like oh yes I see all of the you know all of the moments along the way that have brought me to where I am right now and for grief specifically um I was, this was about, this actually was about five years ago in November. So 2015, I had just gotten back from a trip, like a three-week trip in Bali. And I went to Bali because I was burnt out. Um, At that time, I was the VP of sales and customer excellence. I was an educator um, at the Chopra Center in Carlsbad, California. And I was so aware of how to how out of alignment I was with my own personal wellness, my own personal faith, my own personal sense of, you know, dignity and self-worth. And I was like, how did I get here? So I thought I did what most people do, which is I went to Bali. (laughs) (laughs) A pilgrimage, a self-pilgrimage. Exactly. You know, it worked for Elizabeth Gilbert, Julia Roberts, by way of that movie she was in, playing Elizabeth Gilbert. Um, and really, it's where I'm at in Southern California. A lot of people, you know, will go there and explore and surf and yoga and all all these amazing things. So I went there, and I just found more of what I was trying to avoid here. And I thought, gosh, this is one of those experiences of wherever you go, there you are. And I was like, it's me. It's it's not the job. It's not you know that the friends, the family, it's not the, it's me, it's me and all of these things that is not working. So when I got back, I was like, I'm going to do something different. It maybe means like, you know, leaving this role and taking some time off. I wasn't quite sure what it was. And then I remember I was sitting in my I was sitting in my office and I was looking at spreadsheets of like sales numbers and we we're looking at budget for the next year. And I was like, man, this is, this is literally the last thing I thought I would be doing with my life. And um, at that moment, my mom called and I picked up the phone and she's like, your grandfather's been moved to hospice. He had a surgery that didn't go well. And um, I think he'd had a stroke and they're like, decided to move him to hospice. And I was like, what? 
And I was like, okay, well, I mean, I'll get on a plane and I'll, you know, fly back. So I flew back to um, Cedar Rapids. I'm from Iowa. So he was in actually a hospice unit within the hospital, which is amazing. I have I have so much admiration and appreciation for hospice. Mm. And then also, um, instead of moving him back to, you know, his house, they decided to keep him in the hospital, which I'm so happy about that too. And so it was like my mom, my grandma, my cousin, my aunt, and me in the hospice room. And I had no, I, I've never known anyone who had an experience with hospice. I'd never had an experience myself. So in my head, I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to see my grandfather, but then I'm going to be in a hotel room or maybe there's like, you know, private rooms. And I get there and I'm like, okay, where should I put my stuff? They're like, anywhere in here. And I was like, but like, is there a room? They're like, we're in the room. (laughs) It's like, what? And so it's like, they have cots, they have pullout beds. And it was like the whole family kind of camped out in this room with my grandfather. And it was so uncomfortable because it was the first time I think I'd been in such a space of vulnerability like that. And, and, you know, I, I thought that I had good boundaries before. And what I realized is that being excessively a control freak is not about having good boundaries. <laughs> boundaries and being controlling are two separate things. Mm. So when I was in this experience, I felt very out of control. Um, I had no reference point to how moved. I was having emotions and feelings and sensations I'd never had before. And it was in that moment that I realized, like, as I was like, you know, holding my grandfather's hand is that, um, that this too is going to end. Like, we know that we're not going to live forever, but then you have an experience where you realize on a full body level, you are not going to live forever. And that we're not promised tomorrow. In fact, the only moment we're in is, is the one that we're in. It's the one that we have. And that caused me to really reevaluate my life and the choices I was making and how I wanted to spend it. And the this was the opening. And then 45 days later, um, my dad died in a pedestrian accident. Mm. And so the two, you know, most significant men in my life at that time, my grandfather and my father, both within, you know, a matter of 45 days. And my dad's, you know, death, first of all, it's for those of you, it's like when you when you lose a parent, no matter if it's anyway, it, it's just like there's the loss of a parent. And this can even be the parent is still living, but like you're estranged. But that mm-hmm. loss of a parent, that changes you. It changes you. It changes you in ways that you can't even describe. And that, again, brought me into this deeper of like, I feel it was like I I woke up to a capacity of like, wow, I thought I was awake, but I was really sleepwalking. And I was just Mm. doing all the things and checking all the boxes because um, I felt like that's, I felt if I did those things that I would somehow feel a sense of peace and success. And what I realized is that I was so going against myself for, you know, at this point I was like 39 years old, I'm 44 now. And um, my dad's death also caused me to realize that this feeling of stuckness, this feeling of incompleteness that has brought me into therapy for like the last 20 years and really as a seeker was really unresolved grief. And unresolved Mm. grief is it's usually it's the unmet hopes, dreams and expectations for our life. It's all the things that we wish were different, better or more. It's all the undelivered communication. So you know, with my dad's death, I realized, God, I had all these things I wanted to say to him, had all these things that I really wanted him to know. I had these conversations. And in the back of my mind, I'm like, there's time. And so that's why I urge you. Suddenly, yeah. Yeah. That's why I, I urge anyone that will listen to me is if you have a conversation or something on your heart where you're like, now's that the right time. I'll do that in the future. Do it today do it today because um, the amount of things that felt unresolved from it, <clears throat> I literally get choked up. <laughs> <laughs> the, amount, the amount of things that um, 
the amount of things that were unresolved after my dad's passing, it was it was just so evident. It was like I was, it's like the Wizard of Oz, you know, when they take the curtain away and you see the man behind the curtain. I realized the man behind the curtain for me was like grief. And it's like mm-hmm. grief has actually bitten my companion. Um, and and here to actually show me what it means to really live fully, which means to allow things to die. And this is not just people, but jobs, friendships, partnerships, relationships with money, you know, we grieve all relationships we deem emotional. So anything that you feel emotional about, there's a relationship there. There's a cycle of change. There's a birth, life, death, rebirth, or transformation. And that is what led me into this journey of like, I feel like I've I've just figured out what I've been looking for. And I want to go as deep and wide and as embodied and integrated as possible. And that's what's led me here today. Damn, Libby. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder, have, have you always been deep? Because it sounds like you've probably always been a seeker. Yes. Um, and what's interesting is, you know, in that depth of feeling and connection, so connection to myself, you know, you can say connection to source, whatever that looks like for you, connection to other. The thing is, I just was going about it in the wrong way, you know, through sex, drugs, and um, rock and roll. So I used Ooh, to work in radio. More. <laughs> I used to work I and I I now do also back in radio. Right. But that was such an amazing experience for me because that outlet of like creativity and connection and creation and in the beginning um I just remember like experimenting, you know, with um, you know, with drugs and alcohol and that feeling of being unbounded you know, and it was like, yeah, yeah, the freedom. And, um, and again, mind you, it's, um, it it is not authentic. (laughs) It is, it is creating into, um, it's, it's drawing me into this place of, um, it's like getting just a little bit of taste of that and having the inner critic or the self doubt or the inner dialogue, just calm down for a little bit. And I just remember early on, like in my 20s, using alcohol in that way because it was the time where I could I it's it's like I could finally take a break versus when um it was like in the back of my head it was always the more 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 next 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 and I felt like with as I was seeking depth in those ways at least I could hit pause and just relax now I'm not encouraging anybody to start using drugs or alcohol because that also brought me into, um, I feel, and for many you know, clients that I work with is on the other side of that is when you kind of come up for air is the guilt and the shame spiral. Mm. So it's like this never ending, you know, it was almost like every time, you know, I mean, I, I can count on, I've never really talked about this in this way before, but it feels important. Um, I I can't even count how many times I probably blacked out using alcohol. And I'm always so interested when I meet somebody and they're like, yeah, I've never blacked out or no, I don't really drink alcohol. And I'm like, I don't even like, (laughs) are we even on the same planet? (laughs) I can't even comprehend that. Like that was just my, that was my experience. And, um, and I think it really was about seeking, you know, it really was it, you know, of course there's better ways to go about it. But it was those things that actually led me to start to practice yoga and start to study meditation. And um, after my dad's, you know, after my dad's death and starting to use different types of healing modalities, I was led to uh, Kundalini yoga. And I know you and I have talked offline about Kundalini, but that practice really, you know, for my nervous system and the ability to like stay in my body and stay present. That was the other thing. Drugs and alcohol really, it, it was like easy to disassociate, right? It was like, it's I don't- It's numbing, yeah, it's you're numbing. numbing. I don't have to feel the pain. So Kundalini yoga and just yoga and breath work and meditation in general, I feel was helping me to build the capacity to to stay here, to be here with you. And um, grief, what I'm learning and what I'm teaching 
is about being able to hold conflicting feelings, you know, happy and sad, sad, devastated and joyful. Like we don't have to choose one or the other. We actually have the capacity to hold both. And if there's anything about 2020, I think it's conflicting feelings. Yes. Oh my goodness. You know, as you're talking, I'm thinking about you identifying the word grief. So your your father dies, your grandfather dies within 45 days of each other, right? Yeah. And and that is obvious grief. And then as you start to rewind back, you start naming it mm-hmm. in other ways. And one thing that I heard on your show is that there are 45, 40, over 40 different types yeah. of grief. Can you tell me more about that? Because to me, and the reason why I had you on is to me, this is a paradigm shift. Mm-hmm. You know, people don't label the grieving. And I think that especially through this pandemic, people are saying we are grieving, you know, like there's been experts that come on and say it, all this that you're feeling, those conflicting feelings, this is grief, Mm -hmm. but can you peel back the layers a little bit of, of what that looks like and how we experience it in a different way? Yeah. So 40, you know, 43, 45, I mean, there's so many different types of loss and, you know, loss, And I love the Grief Recovery Method Handbook. This is a great resource. Um, I did their training and certification about three years ago. And this was like, it was such a wonderful container for me to begin to understand. Because while I am very much about feeling, I also want to know, like, what's the context? Like, give give me a container that I can put this into. And that's what they did. And so the, you know, over 43 different types of loss, you know, the definition starting there is grief is the natural and normal response to loss of any kind. And the, the other thing is, you know, grief is also um, the change in any normal pattern or behavior. So anytime there's a change, whether it's positive or negative, there's going to be associated feelings of grief. And then unresolved grief is almost always about the the things we wish were different, better, or more, Mm. and unmet hopes, dreams, and expectations. So there's, let me put this into context for 2020, is um, before my dad died, I didn't realize that you could grieve other things besides loss of loved ones or a job or a relationship, for example. So many people are grieving right now. Um, The change in the way that they work, so working from home, job loss, um, change in your routine, the way that we grieve. So this year, for many people, losing loved ones, you can't gather and grieve in the same way that you were once able to. And so it's almost like people have to put the ritual on hold, Mm -hmm. which has been devastating. And it's like, how do I, because there's, again, becomes the feeling of incompleteness. There is um, the intangible. So there's the intangible losses, which are the loss of faith, the loss of safety, loss of trust, loss of identity. So especially for many of us, when um, when I was laid off um, from radio, and this was, I think it was like 27 or 28, and the station I was working for in D.C. Um, flipped from uh, modern rock to Spanish. It was amazing. Felt like I had reached like the pinnacle of my career at the station WHFS. And that I didn't realize um, at, in that moment, I do now, how much losing that job was a loss of identity. So many people this year are going through that loss of identity. The same thing, um, you know, I speak to a lot of, I have friends and clients where now they're homeschooling their children. Mm-hmm. So they've got the job and now the homeschooling and then the loss of the relationship with their partner. Divorce rates are up more than ever before. Suicide rates up more than ever before. And that I think is also this loss of community and the way that we connect. This, I think the intangible losses is, it's, it's more difficult for people to digest because we are a country of minimizing and validating. Mm. And so the way that we approach loss is replace the loss, just get a new one. 
don't feel bad. So it's like good vibes only. Hmm. Um, so an example that of that be one is- one of the most toxic things ever. I believe. 100%. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit positivity? more? Isn't it, it called is. toxic positivity where, you know, the, it, this, ca- this kind of showed up for me when The Secret came out. So what was that? Like 2008. And so The Secret yeah. was this concept of... Um, of what you think about, you bring about. So, and and there were these wild claims from some of these experts, these spiritual experts and gurus that would say you caused your own cancer. Not blaming you, but you know, if your mindset was right, you could cure it. And it was very, yeah. very dangerous to to think about yeah. that. And the way it manifested in my life is in that time, I really bought in hook, line, and sinker to the whole secret thing. Um, and this was a long, long time ago when I was in a very, very dark place. I had, you know, kind of lost work and really was struggling with the identity thing. And I had a friend that um, was really, really close to me. And she um, really took this to- this positivity at all costs kind of really seriously. And I remember her saying to me, Allison, I can't talk to you right now because I think you're being too negative. And I remember... I remember feeling, I rem- I still remember how profound that was. And even today, I am, if I'm feeling particularly bad, I don't really um, suffer from anxiety or depression. And if I do, I, I, I haven't, uh, maybe I'm in denial. I don't know. I'm open to it. But um, on those times when I feel really down or really off, I think about that conversation of you're being too negative. And I think, no, I need to feel this. I need to move through the tunnel and come out yeah. the other side because if I just try and poke a hole and pop out, you know, it's it's going to come down and it's going to come yeah. back and it won't it won't be resolved in in any healthy way. And so that's what yeah. I mean. <laughs> um your example is so perfect. And I feel like everyone listening can identify, well, I don't want to generalize, but I know I can identify with um, an example in what you were sharing. And this really demonstrates and illustrates what it feels like when you're not being seen and heard by somebody you care about. Mm. And they are either overtly or inadvertently shaming you for what it is that you're feeling. And again, this is the epidemic of the don't feel bad, the good vibes only, the spiritual bypassing. If it doesn't feel good, don't feel it. And what I know to be true is what you resist persists. So the way that I teach is that it's not just about getting better at feeling, um, or it's not just about feeling better, it's about getting better at feeling. And that means the whole breadth of emotions like you were experiencing. And because, and I agree with you that the secret when it came out was dangerous in that we were telling people that it's good vibes only all the time, which is just not realistic. And I don't think it's about being a human. And there's actually a movie, it'll be interesting if you watch this, it's called After the Secret. And so it has a lot Hmm. of the people where they're like, well, we kind of recognize that we we're going to walk this back this a little bit now. <laughs> right. And they did. And it was really interesting to see. And I'm like, did it really need to take us like 10 years in order for you mm. to do that? But I'm glad that there was some attention brought to that. But I want to speak a little bit about the invalidation and the minimizing. And another you know, thing that I, I think in 2020 I'm seeing is that we're a fix it mentality versus a feel it mentality. And I believe that in Pema Chodron, one of my favorite teachers, she wrote a book. Um, it's there's there's actually a couple different books I can recommend. We can put them in show notes. But yeah, the one I think for grief is really when things fall apart. Hard advice for difficult times. And in that book, over and over, she'll talk about how nothing ever goes away until it teaches us what we need to know. So if we're like, you know, the, whether it's the self-doubt and it's not feeling worthy, you know, the sadness, the grief, it's like, we think with our thinking self that like, we're just, we're bypassing or I'm not going to put energy there. 
But what I'm really inviting people to do is allow yourself and really give yourself parameters to feel it. Because I, I believe that our feelings lead us in any type of suffering, leads us to awakening from the heart. And we've been moving so much from this mental, this mind and intellect space. And, you know, the mind can only take you um, as far as you've already been. So when we go back to the mind and we look for answers, we're, we're going to get more of the same. It's like the definition of insanity. We're moving into, I feel, for more of this heart-centered space. And we have, you know, the research now of like not only the brain, but the heart and the gut, you know, in terms of the intelligence. And, you know, if you're just continuing to move from the place of the mind, you're missing out, I think, on just the magic of what the experience of the body, the experience of feelings, the opportunity to connect, vulnerable, expand in that way. And so when we're grieving, one of the things that I experienced at the death of my father is I definitely had friends who are like, I can't sit with you in this discomfort. Because when we are around, you know, when, and I think back to this too, when I was around people who are really in it and, and, and it was uncomfortable for them, it was uncomfortable for me because it was causing me to look at all the stuff that I was suppressing um, and choosing not to feel. So does that make sense? How being able to, <clears throat> to sit with somebody in their own discomfort without making it about you? It does make sense, but it's insanely difficult. So as you're, yeah. as you're walking through feeling it all, and I have experienced um, through this pandemic, I have a, a friend of mine who is a Gestalt therapist, and she's amazing. She's been on the podcast. Her name is Adela Rafa. And right in the beginning, I called her and said, you know, has it been really tough? I mean, you see people who suffer from anxiety and depression all the time. Are they just losing their mind? She said, no, they're fine. It's people who don't suffer from anxiety yeah. and depression that are losing it. Uh, because the the people that normally do their condition to it. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, welcome to my world, you know, that everything gets turned up a notch. And and as I'm thinking about how challenging emotionally it has been for me, um, just being honest, it just, uh, you know, I, I try and intellectualize and rationalize a lot of it, but I feel things on a way that I don't know how to get out of. And I couldn't imagine, so I imagine I'm not alone there. And I imagine there are people that, you know, really feel the impact and feel it on a way that I have not lost my job. You know, there are other people that are really impacted where their livelihood, their lifestyle, their, you know, ability to, to put food on the table has been impacted. And from a grief perspective, from a feel-it-all perspective, it's so much easier to turn on the Netflix, to grab a bottle of wine and just forget it. Yeah. And, you know, I, I feel like I've been far more reliant on melatonin. I, do, I don't really, I'm not really a drinker. I'm not, um, I don't really do drugs, um, but I feel like I'm, I'm relying more on it. So how do you help people feel it all when it is so intense or so much more intense even now and, and do yeah. it in a healthy way? Like for me, I hate meditation for the very reasons that you love it because I am so afraid to sit with myself and have what comes up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think one of the best ways that I can share, you know, some real practical ways. And that's the thing too, with the Grieve Better podcast, when, um, you know, Jesse Itzler was wanting a podcast on grief of like practical ways to cope. Like, you know, how, how do we build resilience? What is like, how can we bring it, you know, in a practical way? And that's, I think, what I really love to do. So I want to give you a couple of ways that are very practical that can help us in building capacity because really, Allison, what I've in more of the research and the work that I've done in working with clients is, yes, we're talking about loss. We're talking about grief is the natural, normal response to loss of any kind. But really what it gets down to is how we approach change 
from our intellect, our mind, our nervous system, our body. And this has a lot to do with changes. And again, change can be positive or negative, but the the experience of change in the past and what we chose to make it mean. So our meaning around change has a lot to do with um, how we are experiencing 2020 in my experience in research and working with clients. And this also has a lot to do with not only the meaning around change, but also you're talking about coping strategies. So I think it's perfectly normal um, to binge on Netflix. Personally, my um, mode of binging now is the Hallmark Channel because I can't get enough. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I I'm actually, doing Handmaid's Tale and I'm like, this is a little too real. <laughs> I don't know that I should put myself I feel this. like I feel like Handmaid's Tale might like cause me to go into a little bit of a stress, like hormone response. <laughs> but um, So I'm choosing the formulaic like Hallmark Channel, right. you know, the holiday movies, which are great. Um, but it's, I think it's important for us to know. So there's a couple steps I want to give you. One, know what you do when you don't want to feel what you're feeling and be awake when you do that thing. So it's like, I need a break. Like last night I was what like, what does that mean? Know what you do. So for example, yes. So for example, last night I was feeling a little salty and a little prickly, um, just because it was like the end of the week, it was the end of the day, this was on a Friday. And I was like, I really feel like I need something sweet to balance like the saltiness that I'm feeling. Hmm. And so I knew that that meant like not staying in my feelings, but like, what can I kind of bring in or add to? And what came to me was a peanut butter chocolate um, peanut butter <laughs> chocolate cupcake, and then also Hallmark. Like that's not necessarily always my go-to. Usually it's being out in nature or getting together with you know my family or something like that. But last night, that's what I chose to do. And I knew that this was giving me a break from feeling, um, I've just been feeling this urgency to like create and like execute and get content out. And I was like, I'm giving myself an opportunity to pause. And in that pause, here's what I'm going to do instead. Versus the way that we do it without paying attention is spend an entire 13 hours binge watching Netflix. Meanwhile, what I also find clients are doing, it's like you've, you're binge watching Netflix, you've got your phone and you're doing the doom scroll on social media. <laughs> right. Maybe you have your laptop open, right? It's like we have, it's like, give me enough distraction so then I can just numb out. So I'm just saying when you choose to hit pause or numb out, do it while paying attention. You're just, and again, there's nothing else you need to do besides that of like, you know what, right now I'm having that peanut butter chocolate cupcake and I am eating my feelings. I know exactly what I'm doing. Mm. I'm not. You're just being present to it all, right. Present to it all. So this is, again, a lot of the work that I do, all the work that I do is really rooted in mindfulness. So like let's, the more that we pay attention, we're that active participant in our lives. The second thing that we can do, and this is a practice I I recommend everyone do, you know, after this podcast or maybe well during, is there's two steps. There's identify. So it's identifying the different types of losses you might be experiencing right now. In mm. fact, just naming it, like powerful. you did, Allison, yeah. just naming it, and then also naming it and then any feelings associated with it. So you were, um, you, I'll give an example for me is like um, the, one of the losses that I've experienced is I would do my um, grief course um, in person, you know, locally in the community here in San Diego County. And the loss that I feel around that is loss of community, of connection, of getting the feedback on being able to really support people. Um, there's a financial loss. There's, you know, the connection, the community, the identity, all of that. And that sadness, that's, you know, I feel there's a feeling of isolation or disconnected. Um, there's the loss of joy. So you're identifying the loss and then you're also naming feelings and like even secondary losses that go with it. Just that exercise 
There's brain imaging studies that when we name it, we identify it, we recognize the emotionally reactive parts in the brain start to calm down. I want to pause for a minute because there's something that you said that there there are like four phrases that stop me dead in my tracks. And one of them I think is really important. I have to read it. The physical relationship ends, but the emotional relationship doesn't. Yeah. Tell me more about that. So the... So the physical relationship, so talking about the um, the relationship with my dad, for example. So my dad, you know, I learned that my dad has died in an accident. So physically, he's not here anymore. But the emotional relationship continues. So all of the things that were, say, unresolved, the undelivered communications, you know, and these are all the things we wish were different, better, more, um, you know, the relationship that we never had, that continues. And I'm left with that. And also the emotional relationship of loving my dad and, you know, seeing the empty chair, you know, at holidays. So in people can do this with their pets. And that's why the idea of we can use this with relationship of partners and then also relationship with pets is that a lot of times what we'll do because of the fix it mentality is we'll just replace the loss. So your dog dies, just get a new dog. It's like, but the new dog, I don't have the relationship with the relationship I have is with the old dog that, that died. So that replace the loss strategy doesn't work. Same thing with relationships. Like how many times have we heard you go through a breakup and it's like, just get a new one or just, Mm -hmm. you know, have a rebound. And it's like all the things that are unresolved from that previous relationship, unless you actually do the work, just like we were saying, identifying, naming it, feeling it, um, you're going to take all that unresolved stuff into the next relationship. Same thing with work. Mm -hmm. So this is a big thing. I work with organizations, how to work with their teams and getting clear on any residual stuff from their past jobs and roles so that they can come in clean and clear to this one versus trying to get complete emotionally with things that were left incomplete with the previous relationship. That's so powerful because I'm thinking about a lot of times there is trauma on top yeah. of trauma, on top of trauma, on top of trauma. And we're just trying to go as fast as we can. We're such a productivity society, yeah. productivity-based society, and the values are put there. And I think there's a little more of a reckoning now mm-hmm. um, and an expectation for this great pause that we're all in. But at the same time, it's um, it's hard to be able to understand how to move through it when you want to feel as productive as possible and that the Mm -hmm. pause is painful and sometimes it can be very slow and uh and that's hard for us to sit with and i'm wondering about supporting other people that are grieving because we are as americans we're freaking terrible at it (laughs) Yeah, we we are. I would say on um, when I started to do, and, and I'm in the process right now, so I can't speak to it, you know, on even an expert or a novice level because I'm learning myself just the way that other cultures, you know, and countries grieve. But they're also, I mean, you can take a look at it. We're so mental. Like you said, productivity is like, for many people, such um, an important value. What I find, though, is that when people go through, we go through um, the Grieve Better course, which allows you to do a lot of unearthing of um, unresolved grief, you know, these undelivered communications. And what I'll find for many people is that their value system changes on the other side. Because I realized something that they held in importance was actually a reaction to a previous loss, even like you said, early childhood trauma. Mm. So how do we help other people that are grieving? I think it goes back to our earlier conversation, which is watch for the way that we very kind of on the low key invalidate people's experiences. Here's a couple of examples. Um, when someone is like, man, I'm really bummed out about that. I'm really upset. And it's like, well, look on the bright side, or you don't really mean that. It's like, we're, 
we are literally not giving that person who is sharing with us what's on their heart the opportunity to have their experience without our projection or interpretation of their experience. So that's the first thing. And as we head into, you know, the holiday season, this is a great one for us to do with our families and our friends. The second one is even if you have experienced a similar loss, like remember after my dad died, I had many people reach out and they're like, you know, my dad died too. I know exactly how you're feeling. And then they would go into their experience and I would get so angry when somebody would say, I know exactly how you're feeling. Because I'm like, how could they even know how we're feeling? Yes, we had a similar experience, but they don't know about the relationship that my dad and I had. I have no idea about their relationship with their dad. And so when we say that, I know exactly, again, we're invalidating that person's experience. Mm. So what we can say instead is, man, I can't even imagine how you're feeling, but I know how I felt when my dad died and it was awful. And then listen, like really being there for someone, there's, um, even if you're the most trained, excellent person ever, there is nothing that you can say that can make anyone feel better. Because again, this is not a mental game, this is a heart game. And so being able to listen deeply to somebody and see them without needing to make our comments or our good advice, they don't want it. Grievers don't want to be fixed. They want to be heard. Mm. So just those two things, I think, can create such an opening, especially if you find a friend that's telling you the same story over and over. It's probably because you're not listening. So they're having to say the same thing over mm. and over and over. That's a different perspective. And I've, I've listened... I don't know why, but I've always um, I've always been very fascinated by grief and sadness. And I actually think funerals are beautiful. I don't yeah. want to go to them all the time, but I think they're the only time that we have a really good chance of reflecting on how we're showing up or how that deceased person is showing up. Mm-hmm. And I've for some reason I've heard on in multiple uh, people who have lost um, a child, like their child died. They're grieving Mm -hmm. parents. And so many of them say it's hard because all I'm trying to do is to comfort the other person that doesn't know what to say. That's right. Which is the exact wrong thing. And something you said, it is intellectually accurate and emotionally useless. That's brilliant, Libby. (laughs) Intellectually accurate and emotionally useless. Yeah. Damn. So these are platitudes. So the platitudes are the things that like, yeah, intellectually, that makes sense. But in the moment, you know, it's emotionally useless. Because again, it's like, you know, for example, when people lose a child, it's just amazing what people say without thinking about it, because you're right, it's awkward. People don't know what to say. So they will just, it's like this verbal diarrhea. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you're like, yeah, yeah, stop. yeah. And it's, you know, for I've, I've, oh man, in working with people who have, you know, lost a child, it's like, man, I can't believe how many people say to me, like, well, you're young, you can have another one. It's like, this is where, again, the physical relationship ends, but the emotional relationship continues. So replacing the loss isn't going to solve a problem because it is there is no problem, right? And I think that's for us, especially here in the West, so hard to get because we want to fix it. We want like the four-step plan to like get through and feeling complete again and back to normal. That's another thing is how many of you have said, well, when things get back to normal. And when we say when things get back to normal, and if we're hoping for that, really what we're longing for is getting back to familiar, because familiar equals safe. And so in the brain, when there's uncertainty, it registers like an error that needs to be fixed before we can continue. So I want to invite everyone to is like, imagine that there is no getting back to normal, like what would need to happen for you today to come back into a place of feeling connection and joy and creativity and generosity. These are all the things that are important to me. So whatever 
is important to you. But it's like, what needs to happen today versus thinking a future moment is going to bring us something that this moment that we're in right now, Allison, does not. And that's a powerful way to live in the present. That's a really, really profound statement that I think need. It, it's not about, it's not that we miss normal, we miss familiar. Yes. And you used an example in your podcast about, uh, I don't know what show it was, like Malcolm in the Middle or Seinfeld or something. Yes. And I, I actually, when you heard that, I'm like, she is so right. I was in, um, um, I, I busted my knee. And so I'm, I'm recovering from surgery and uh, go to a, a physical therapy. And they play reruns. I guess they play TBS or something. And there was reruns of Friends. And I haven't watched it in since the 90s. And just having it on, even though it's with the cl- captions or whatever, um, I find so much comfort. Like I look forward to going to physical therapy because of Friends. Yes. And but that that I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's like a simpler time. And mm-hmm. I can't imagine it's going to be simple again. So how do you recreate or create a new reality? What does that look like? So it, that is going safe back, and familiar. Yes. Yeah, so going back to, um, you were talking about the balance of the sweet and the salty or yeah. the sweet and the sour. And I found myself in, in that podcast episode, I was talking how I was watching The Office, which I love. That's it. Yeah. The Office. There's such. I love the characters in The Office. I love the characters in Parks and Rec. I love the characters in Arrested Development. Um, cause there's all these amazing comedic arts and things like that. And, um, and then I went even deeper to murder. She wrote, <laughs> <laughs> so I like went way back and there's some fantasy Island in there. And it's like, you know, that take me way back to like childhood. But I think it's important to recognize, and this is why in my course and also in the podcast, I bring in the science and the research, the understanding of the brain and the body, because we think that we're the only one having this experience, but it's really important to remember that we are wired for survival. Survival likes familiar, familiar equals safe. So we want to stay in a familiar and safe space. Mm. So you can do yourself a favor. And by the way, laughter is a wonderful thing. It produces, we can think of it as like the antidote to stress in many ways. Mm -hmm. So watching old shows that again, there's that, you know, reminding us of a simpler time that can create some really good chemicals, you know, in the brain and the body. And then with the nervous system, especially if we're in a fight, flight, freeze, appease, or dissociate space, this familiarity, I find, and you can try this yourself, allows us to kind of relax and rest and digest a bit. And then doing things like that, that kind of bring you back to what's a familiar thing that you can use while in a space of uncertainty is a wonderful way. And then creating a container of a morning routine and an evening routine. That way, whatever happens throughout the day, you know, we're going to remain as flexible as we can. But if you start to, again, we're creating new grooves where you have a morning routine that you do every single morning, you have an evening routine that you do every single night, then you've got your bookends for the day. Um, I would like to invite you to do Rise and Radiate Monday, Wednesday, Friday at 7 a.m. Pacific. Yes, (laughs) I pop in there. You always have a good group of people. On yeah. there. <laughs> so, and it's great because it's this opportunity of teaching online has, it's a global audience. So we have people from Hong Kong, Australia, you know, Montreal, um, a lot of people on the West Coast, but we're all coming together because we're training ourselves to pay attention. And then also to, because a lot of the Kundalini practices are uncomfortable. And this is a yoga? Is it yoga or is it meditation or both? It's all of it. So it's breath work, it's mindfulness practices, it's Kundalini yoga. Um, these are on IG stories, right? IG yeah. live? Yeah. Yeah. So live on IG. And then also I have tons of, I mean, I'm talking tons of IGTV classes. And I tell people you can pop in for 20 minutes, or you can stay for the whole 60. But this is a training of the nervous system to, um, first of all, to realize that being uncomfortable in the midst of change is natural and normal. So how can we stay connected to our center and not 
you know, disassociate, fight, flight, freeze. And so it's a constant practice of like, how do we train? How do we train? So those are just a couple of ways in any breath work that you do, even something as simple as inhaling for, exhaling for, it's, it's like a, a reset for your system and a coming back into presence. I try and teach that to my seven-year-old and he's like, nothing's happening, mommy. <laughs> I don't know where he gets it from, but I think somewhere the imprint will will have the lasting effects too. I'm curious about um, about you. And so you deal with people, not deal with people, you work with people that have profound, experience profound grief and hidden grief and all kinds of variations of that. How do you hold yourself together? It must be really emotionally, I, I don't want to say taxing or draining. That's I'm, I'm trying to say it in a way that is respectful mm-hmm. um, and not minimizing it, but I'm trying to think of how do, how do, you, how do you deal with such intense work and yeah. protect yourself um, and still be able to hold space to serve others? Mm-hmm. That is a really good question. And I would say I'm learning as I grow. <laughs> and um, for me, even, you know, launching the online course and the podcast, I realize. I mean, I've been doing my own personal work um, around grief and loss and trauma and unresolved grief. And so I work with a somatic coach. What is a somatic coach? Is that like a sleep coach? No. So somatic coach and somatic experiencing. So we're recognizing, especially in, I say the last decade, so much about how the body holds trauma and we hold these conditioned tendencies to how we, this is why I'm talking about really training your nervous system to approach and experience change in a new way. So with the somatic coach is, um, I am working on, this is where the integration of experience and then how I hold that within my body. So I see when I'm working with clients and in groups, literally they change shape as they go through the program. Because the way that we hold, the way that we brace, you know, from the hips to the shoulders to the face, there's this relaxation that has been happening for me over the course of the last, I think, three to four years, been working with this coach. Um, Soma meaning body. Mm-hmm. So we look at, very simply put, like how we hold the issues in our tissues. So I bring that somatic piece into the course and then also into the Rise and Radiate classes as well. So we're really paying attention to um, you know, like I was watching Law and Order SVU, which by the way, the first two episodes <laughs> this year, oh my gosh, to to see the way that they've they've they are really meeting what's happening in 2020, especially, you know, with police, it's it's incredible. And I that w- as I'm watching it, I'm literally feeling my body tensing up mm-hmm. or like holding it in my gut, and I was like, "Wow, I love this show." And I need to figure out how to support myself before and after Hmm. because I'm having a physical response. And if we're having a physical response to something we're watching on TV, imagine what's happening in our bodies when we are with our friends, our family, our clients, like we're having the direct experiencing. So in working with the somatic coach and then you know, what I work with clients that helps me to, you can think of yourself of making this like clear channel. The other thing that I do is um, I receive a type of healing and energy work every two weeks. Um, I receive a massage every two weeks. Um, I get acupuncture. That is awesome. <laughs> so is like I, the dream life, Libby. It is. It's and here's the thing is I realized if if I want to do this work and show up in the way that I know that I am capable of, I know that I need a team supporting me. And this is something that um I've over the years, you know, I've had friends that have kind of minimized or invalidated like god, why do you do so much? And it's like first of all, I don't need to explain to them. Second of all, I know how doing all of these things support me and being able to support others. So I think people in, um, 
you know, whether working with clients in general, especially in terms of a healing work like that, to think that you're not, even if you're like, no, I have strong boundaries and I'm doing grounding practices before. It is so much more important now than ever that we are, for those of us in these positions, that we take good care so that we can show up in, I think, you know, the cleanest and clearest channel ever. So what do you Those are know? just some of the things I do. Oh, that's so good. <laughs> that's so good. I never heard that before. I understand the grounding things, you know, but that that's really important. It sounds like you've baked in some of these uh, coaches and this team really into your life that it's, it's kind of a non-negotiable. Tell me, what yeah. do you know that you wish other people could know? I, I think one of the most important things is the permission to grieve, you know, the permission to be disappointed and to allow yourself, you know, just the full feeling of when things don't work out the way that you thought they would. Because when we're able to do that, I think in completion, then we're able to bring our whole selves into the next adventure. Mm. So it's like permission to feel. And, um, you know, I, um, just a quick story. Um, I was with my family, my mom and um, my nephews, and we were out to dinner. This was like pre-pandemic. And at the end of the dinner, we were going around, we were talking about how, um, what we were grateful for and something we loved about each other. And my mom got to me and she's like, you know, your aunt Libby is, you know, so sensitive and, you know, she really feels deeply. And the way she was saying it, I was like, I was like, what is she talking about? Cause I feel like I'm, I do feel deeply, but like mm-hmm. I, I was taking it as kind of, um, um, negative. Almost like a concession for you. Like, yeah. Just, like, just so you know, <laughs> So I, so I was confused and I was like, mom, like, what do you mean? She's like, well, you know, you're just, you're, you're very like emotions and feeling and sensitive. And so we talked a little bit more. And what I realized is that, you know, my mom growing up and that my mom's, you know, she's 70 now. So, and grew up in a small town in Iowa and her experience growing up is she didn't have permission to feel or mm. be disappointed or be connected to her feelings. So her experience of me is someone who has the capacity to feel in that way. And I realize as I work with other clients that, you know, when we see our parents, you know, it's, it's like when the, in the reparenting piece, like I think healing the relationship with your parent, whether they're still physically here or not, honestly, is the most important work I think that you can do. It's That's the most important other work that show, I've done. Lib. That is a whole it other show. It is another show. show. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to have you back for the parenting. That's actually not a bad idea. So there's there's one thing you said. I love I'm, that. I'm like, I've got, I'm writing down all of these quotes from you. I thought this was really powerful and a, probably a really great way to end um, this mm-hmm. conversation is unresolved grief is the key to manifestation. Oh, Yeah. That's yeah. Powerful. So, so this is, the, you know, the first piece being like the permission to really feel your feelings um, to the capacity, which again feels safe and comfortable for you, and then the unresolved grief. Like if we can, and here's I'm going to leave you with an exercise that I do um, in the evening. So before bed, I'll do a journaling exercise, and I'll start with who or what. Am I holding emotionally hostage for my feelings? So then Mm. this kind of takes us from, you know, blaming people, places, and things for why I'm feeling the way I am. Because if you're familiar with any coaching model or mindfulness, circumstances don't make us feel a certain way. It's the way we think about them. And so this is an exercise that I find it's kind of retraining the brain to be like, okay, I'm making these people responsible for how I'm feeling. So then I'll go through and I'll, the list has gotten shorter, by the way, the more that I do this. So I'll write down who or what I'm holding emotionally hostage for my feelings. And then I'll move into the practice of forgiveness. And the forgiveness piece is, um, I forgive you so that I can be free. And this forgiveness so that you can be free is not about saying like, okay, what you did is okay. Um, that's not it at all. It's accepting that this thing happened and I am going to release myself 
because when we're holding in anger, we're holding in memorized resentment, it's like we're sending our energy, you know, we're sending, you know, the power of our mind and intellect out there instead of, you know, calling all of all of that back to us in this practice of forgiveness. So I forgive you so that I can be free. So when we are free and when we have reclaimed our power versus giving it away and blaming and memorize resentment, we have the capacity to manifest from from the present. Memorized resentment. Oh, Damn. that's a good one. I'm I'm, ri- I'm writing this down. If you can see, like <laughs> taking can. notes, that's good. <laughs> this memorized really resentment. How can people work with you? So, um, find me first of all. Listen to the Grieve Better podcast on BYLR Radio, and then my website, Liberated L I B B E R A T E D. Such a great name. Um, you can also find me liberated on Instagram and I have my, um, grieve better online course will be launching in January. And then I, up until then I'm having uh, two hour workshops every Sunday. So every Sunday through the rest of 2020, um, which is grieve better together. So an opportunity to come together in community. I'm going to teach different um, short meditations and breath work that can really help with the memorized resentment so we can let go and come into the present. Um, And then I do work with a select few of like one on one clients with the grieve better course. So those are a few ways that we can connect and work together. I love this. And I have one final question. So a lot of the work that we talk about of getting through grief is, is really around ourself um, mm-hmm. of, of really feeling feelings, but how important is community and finding whether it's people who are in a similar boat or people who can hold space and hear and see you, how critical is that? I would say it is the most important thing. Mm. It truly is. You know, grieving in isolation and in, in many people for the reasons we've talked about in this podcast where you feel like you're not being heard, you're not being seen, you're feeling invalidated. This will cause people to move to isolation and grieve alone. And while you can do a lot of this work on your own, and I did, the most profound shifts I had was grieving in community. So communal grieving. And when you are in a shared space with other people who, again, we have all different, we don't compare losses. Everyone grieves at 100%, right? There's just some Hmm. losses that are more intense than others. And when you can hear and hold space for others, and then they do the same thing for you. This goes back to, we can think of the nervous system, the issues in our tissues, the somatic piece is there is a relaxing, there's a connection, there's a healing that is so profound. Me even describing it in words would like, I feel diminish it, but it's, it's, um, mm. it's beyond recognition, but you feel it. And then there's that embodiment of wholeness. So that's the perfect segue to grieve better together. You've created a community for people to yeah. do that. Wow, that's powerful. Libby, I'm so grateful for you. I loved having you on the show. I wish I could have you on the show every week because I have so many more questions. <laughs> I will come back at it's any time. time. <laughs> yes. It was amazing. You your um your insight and you know what was I could really feel what was on your heart and asking like it just I so appreciate you creating this platform because I know that I got a lot out of our experience today and I'm sure so many other people did too and so thank you for like stepping up into this place also vulnerability and sharing and showing yourself because girl I see you I do see you because we're on zoom And I also hear you, and I'm really grateful to BYLR for bringing you into my life. Uh, Me too. Thank you so much, Libby. It's great to talk to you. And I'll link everything in the show notes too, but thank you so much for being here. Have you ever discovered someone and you knew instantly that you needed to be connected with them? That is how I felt when I first learned about Libby and her Grief Better podcast. She dropped so many truth bombs in our chat that really, really helped me. And I trust it will make a huge impact for you too. So let me rewind. Nothing ever goes away until it teaches us what we need to know. 
And then the physical relationship ends, but the emotional relationship doesn't. Ah, that really hit home too. And then intellectually accurate and emotionally useless. I think that'll help me is to help others when they're struggling too, to not always be so quick to share my perspective or my story, but to allow them to just talk and be heard. And that's it. And then unresolved grief is the key to manifestation. That to me felt like the biggest beacon of hope, especially when you're in the valley of darkness. Unresolved grief is the key to manifestation. Please connect with Libby and listen to the Grieve Better podcast exclusively on BYLR Radio. I've linked all of her info on the social, uh, all of her info on the show notes. And please stay connected with me. Socials, allisonhair.com, newsletter, text me at 470-242-6311. Let me know what you think. Leave me a review. Send me more Morse code. Just tell me what you think. Most of all, share this episode. Share the Gospel of Culture Changers podcast. And let's grow our audiences together. Thanks for listening. And I'll see you next week. Thank you.